Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of History Hacker. You've got Beth here for a change. We don't, I don't often get on these anymore, but it's always a joy to be back on these, particularly when the lovely Charlie White is involved as well. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Beth, my history sister from another mister. Indeed. Back with you. It's so, it is so good. So, Charlie... This is going to be a good one, isn't it? Who have we got today? Yeah, you're in for a treat. So today we are going to be talking to Kate Moss. She's an award-winning novelist, author of nonfiction, playwright, essayist and serial overachiever. She's the founder director of the Women's Prize for Fiction and the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. And I was lucky enough to interview her about her most recent nonfiction title, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, back in February. So do check out that episode if you missed it. Kate is back today to tell us about her latest historical novel, The Ghost Ship. Hello, Kate. Hello, Charlie. Lovely to be back. Uh, it's really wonderful to have you back on the podcast. I know that you've been very much touring the last book on the promotional trail with this one. So uh, hopefully we'll have a nice, easy chat and you can take it a bit easy with us today. <laughs> it's very nice being in my own house. That's for sure. That's for sure. But, you know, I am um, I really love meeting readers. And so I did do quite a big uh, tour for The Ghost Ship because I didn't get the chance to tour with my last novel because of COVID. Mm. And I. I love being in bookshops. I like meeting the people who are getting our books out there and readers come with all of their stories. And, you know, so I, I love touring. It's not a hardship at all. Um, but after 30 gigs in three weeks, I, um, yeah, my voice is nearly giving out. So let's see if we can get to the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Well, look, let's, let's kick off with a little bit of background to the ghost ship. So, who were the Huguenots and why were they persecuted? What's what's going on around your novel? Thank you. Well, The Ghost Ship is the third of a series of four novels uh, that cover 300 years of uh, Huguenot history, which um, and Huguenots are essentially just the French Protestants. Um, the series starts in 1562 uh, and finishes in 1862 in South Africa, on the other side of the world, from Carcassonne, where the where the novels begin, and it's uh, that period of Reformation in Europe, uh, when the established church, the Church of Rome, in most of Europe, is fracturing and being challenged. And so, in 
the Low Countries that will become United Provinces, otherwise Holland, um, in England, which will become Britain, in Scotland, in France, in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, there are challenges that the new Protestant faith is challenging everywhere. And the Huguenots are simply the French Protestants. Um, and the ghost ship is uh, a standalone novel, really, even though it's the third in the series, because it's a pirate novel. Um, and at this moment in Huguenot history, uh, the novel starts in 1610, and the great French king, who has brought peace to France after a generation of vicious religious civil war, is Henry IV. But the peace is not to last. As you've just mentioned there, Henry IV, I read it, obviously, on our questions, it's got the I and I just want to go, oh, Henri. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he's always known as Henri Quatre, actually. Yeah. Lots of the other French kings are known as Louis Thirteenth or whatever, but he is always yeah. Henri Quatre because he was kind of a, a giant um, amongst the French kings. And also, Beth, because everybody in this period is called Louis or Henry. Yeah. It's just overwhelming. There's even one war in the Wars of Religions that is known as the War of the Three Henrys. Oh. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> I mean, I think that's a perfect way to entice it. Yeah. Um, so, as you've said, he's he's this great king who's sort of been bringing peace to the area. But part of the book is is also tied in and as a wider context is to deal with his assassination, isn't it? So. Can you tell us a bit about that, about the assassination of this 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 great man? Who... Yes, I mean, you know, I, I'm careful to say great king rather than great man, mm. in that he was a right old monkey in other ways. I mean, he was notorious for his womanising and his drinking, and half the time he was very depressed about things and then would go and do very wild things. But in terms of his statesmanship and what he did for France, he was a practical modernising king. And he was the first of the Bourbon kings. The Valois dynasty had been in charge for a long time. And Catherine de' Medici, after her husband Francis died early, had to see one after another of her sons, many of them extremely inadequate and possibly quite seriously ill um, young men, die on the throne. And she was the queen regent for many of them. And they were left with no nobody left. And the wars of religion have been going on. And Henry IV, Henri IV, had converted to Catholicism for the second time, it has to be said, with the famous words, Paris is well worth a mass. Because he, although he was the legitimate king of France, uh, Paris was an ultra-Catholic city and would not accept him. So he had done this. He is crowned in uh, Chartres Cathedral, in fact. Uh, not in the Rath, which is where normally the French kings are um, crowned, in 1594. And he has brought peace to France because he understands this, that the Huguenots, even though it's not a phrase that would be used, are were essentially the middle class. They were the working, wealth-generating people. They were not the aristocracy and they were not the so-called peasant class. They were the doctors and the engineers and the academics and the apothecaries and the bookbinders and all of these things. And he understood that France had bankrupted herself by this generation of civil war. So peace had to come mm. and he had succeeded and he was modernizing France. He was doing things that seem so obvious to us now, but were radical at the time. For example, setting aside two uh, parcels of land in the heart of Paris one, the Place des Vosges, the other one, Place Dauphine, to be 
public parks for the people. Before that, there weren't places where the people could go and sit under the trees at, in, within the sitting walls. And he was supporting uh, tax reform. He was supporting business. And his assassination in May 1610 was a catastrophe for France. And I would go so far as to say that it's not fanciful to suggest that if he had not been assassinated, the French Revolution would not have happened. But because he was, his son took over and began the persecution of the Huguenots again. His grandson went even further, revoked the religious toleration known as the Edict of Nantes in 1688. France expelled all of her Huguenots, let's stick with this, her middle class. Everywhere the Huguenots went, the country prospered. So tiny little Netherlands, because they accepted in so many Huguenot refugees, became a global superpower because it swelled its population by you know, a third, nearly a half. Whereas France went further and further into decay. And in the end, you have the French Revolution. So it's a significant moment. And what I do in my fiction is put my imagined characters in front of the significant moment. So my lead character, Louis Joubert, witnesses the assassination of the king because that turning point is always very exciting for a novelist, the moment at which a totally different story could have been told. Terry Pratchett called it the trousers of time, didn't he? That we could uh, (laughs) go down different routes. That's absolutely fascinating. I'd love to know more about Henri Cat because from what little I do know, as someone who spends a lot of time with his descendant, Charles II, they seem to have a lot in common in their attitude towards religion and women. Um. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes, indeed. But also they were different types of womanizers. I would say Charles the same. I don't know anything like you do, Charlie, but um, certainly with Henri Quatre, that he was, he loved women. So he was not the sort of uh, king that thought he could just do what he wanted. You know, the sort of droit de seigneur or that kind of behavior. Every woman he ever had an affair with, he set up in a house, gave them loads of money. Um, at his, you know, the coronation of his legitimate queen, <laughs> and they had been married for a very long time, she finally is uh, crowned. Uh, just a couple of days before he is assassinated. And this is because he's about to go back into the field. He's in his late 50s. His health is bad and he wants to legitimise his queen. And he's led her a merry dance, no doubt about it. But all of his children, his illegitimate and his legitimate children are there. So he was a man like Charles Way who loved women and respected women. Um, and he, I'm sure, got as good as he got, you know, gave as uh, <laughs> with, with the women he was with so I think it's quite important to say that it's he, he wasn't one of those terrible terrible womanizing men he just he just liked women <laughs> amazing yeah I think that he's definitely definitely some parallels there so with with the Huguenots when when everything starts when they start getting persecuted where did they go what happens to them and how perilous would this journey be in a period when traveling by sea beyond Europe is still a relatively new and very dangerous, I'm guessing, idea. Yes. Well, the period of the ghost ship, it, it begins, as I say, in Paris in 1610, um, where my lead character, Louis Joubert, is there to receive an inheritance. And this is very important because uh, it means she will be wealthy and that will mean she will not have to marry. And as you know, the issue for women in 
almost every period of history, but, but certainly in the 17th century, is uh, losing all agency when they marry, losing their uh, wealth um, and their land, and it's all becoming the property, and them really becoming the property of their husbands. Um, and Louise Joubert is a character who wants to live outside of society. She does not want to live the limited life that would be assigned to her as a wife. So this is why she's there in the first place. This period in Huguenot history is relatively quiet up until this moment, because Henry has brought uh, peace, relative peace to France. There is still persecution of the Huguenots in some quarters. Um, you know, we see this today, the idea that every state that is failing, truthfully, tries to find an enemy within that they target. Um, and we are seeing that on our television screens now from our current government, and we have seen it all the way through history. Um, and it is always failing states that do this. It is not successful states um, that do it, would be my contention. The Huguenots, it has gone all the way back to 1562 and the battle between the Catholics and the Protestants for the heart and soul of France. And it has been a complicated battle because it isn't simply between the Catholics and the Huguenots. It has been two, between two sets of Catholics and the Huguenots. So there has been a triangular power battle going on. And that is between the French crown, the very, very powerful Guise family, and uh, the Huguenots that are also aristocracy in a certain way. And there is a key uh, character uh, called Coligny, who was the leader of what are so-called the war Huguenots. And he was in the period of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which happens in 1572. And that is after three bouts of war in the wars of religion. And there is a, a fragile piece. And that fragile piece is based on the marriage of Henry IV to the daughter of Catherine de Medici, Marguerite de Valois. Uh, so a Protestant boy and a Catholic girl, if you like. And the two queens have brokered this marriage in order to try to bring peace to France. But Coligny has an enormous amount of influence as a Huguenot over the king. And that is resented by both the Guise family and actually Catherine de Medici. So it's incredibly complicated. The persecution has continued uh, through the, the wars of religion, and there are eight or nine, depending on which historian you go with. But there has been, at this moment, a period of nearly 15 years of peace. And Henry has supported the Huguenots, even though he's technically now a Catholic. Um, they have a city called La Rochelle, which is on the Atlantic coast, the west coast of France. And that is essentially almost the Huguenot capital and an independent city-state. And Henry has ploughed a lot of money into that. So he has supported the Huguenots to be equal citizens. And this, of course, is lost in the space of an afternoon when he's assassinated. They then have to get out. Um, how, how does this sort of tie in with the Dutch East India Company and, and the, the idea of piracy in, in the novel? Well, they, they are linked, but not, um, they're not contingent one upon the other, if you like. That the persecution, of course, does start up again um, under Henry's son, but it really ramps up again under his grandson. So this period, um, Huguenots are still free to leave France. What will happen is that they will be forbidden to leave France and forbidden to be Huguenots. So they're in this terrible, awful catch-22 situation. 
at this period that I'm writing about, the novel moves from 1610 um, that summer to mostly is set in 1620 and 21 in La Rochelle, Amsterdam, and the waters around the Canary Islands. The issue at this moment is that Europe, all of Europe, France less than anywhere else because of its internal strife, but everyone in Europe it has lifted their eyes from their own land to the rest of the world. Because the beginning of the 17th century is the great moment of seafaring, becoming something that every city and every state in Europe starts to do. There have, of course, been uh, adventurers and explorers before that. Uh, in England, there's, of course, been Francis Drake. Uh, there's obviously been the great, you know, Christopher Columbus. There's been all of the Portuguese um, e exploration down what is at this moment known as the Portuguese Gold Coast, in other words, the coast of West Africa. And they have been individuals going to find what's out there. What now happens is the Dutch East India Company, in, based in Amsterdam, with headquarters, of course, in Rotterdam and The Hague, uh, they have a 21-year license to go and look for trade routes. They are essentially separate from what is now the United Provinces Navy. They are the most powerful and first real corporation, multi-global corporation in the world, I would say, the East India Company, the Dutch East India Company. And they have this license. And at this moment, they are a trading company. They are not what they will become and everybody will become, which is human traffickers because I think that is a more accurate way of discussing slavery in this context, because it is the understanding that human cargo will be more valuable than spices or even gold. But at this moment, they are genuinely looking for trade routes. And consequently, there start to be opportunities for refugees who are French refugees, Huguenot refugees in Amsterdam, to go on ships to the New World, particularly, but also the Dutch East India colonies, you know, lands that they are stealing from the people who <laughs> legitimately own it, um, are in the far east. They are in what is called Batavia, what we would call Jakarta now. And the Cape is a refueling station. And this is obviously fascinating to me because the story will finish um, in South Africa in the 1860s, is that it's a little bit later than I'm writing about, but from the 1680s onwards, and certainly after 1688, when the Edict of Nantes, the religious toleration, giving Huguenots any rights at all is revoked, you start to see Huguenot refugees going all over the world. They go to Carolina, particularly in um, America. Uh, they, Of course, there have been a steady stream of Huguenot refugees into England, which is now, of course, Britain. Uh, there have been many going across the border into the Holy Roman Empire, what we would now probably call Germany. And of course, there have been huge numbers in the United Provinces who then start to go on ships to the Cape. And the ghost ship finishes with the descendants of Louise Joubert and her, her, the great love of her life uh, arriving in the Cape on a real ship that sailed, the Berg China, which docked in the Cape on the 4th of August. Uh, 1688, to discover what happened to her ancestors, what happened to the ghost ship. Mm, so, plot thickens. Um, plot thickens. There's a lot of that. There's right. a lot of secrets, a lot of revenge, a lot of, you know, people in disguise. You no, know, it's a proper pirate novel. <laughs> so there is that sort of general 
I'll come back to the question, but there is that sort of general fascination with pirates, isn't there? Like they're just such a, a topic that I think mystifies people and people really can get into. But as as part of the novel, you know, we want people to to read it, so we won't give too much of the details away. But you do also talk about the Canary Islands because I was thinking this myself when we were sort of getting ready for this talk. Where they're placed is actually really quite quite interesting I suppose in the context of this novel but in the history of the time period that you're focusing on as well. Absolutely they are at the still point of the turning world of the evolving world and I love the Canary Islands I always have I know it's terribly unfashionable uh, but people make judgments on the Canary Islands based on the behavior of British and German tourists Hmm. Um, rather than the real history of the archipelago which is extraordinary and fascinating so it the, the islands, there are seven major islands, and they're known as the Islas Afortunadas, the lucky islands. And they sit between four continents. And they are, uh, the original inhabitants of the island are, um, are peoples called the Guanches. And there's a certain amount of evidence to suggest that the Guanches could be as old as Aboriginal peoples in mm-hmm. Australia. Others think that they are more likely to be descended from Berbers in North Africa, but a very ancient civilization. They were almost completely wiped out by the Castilian invasion of the 15th century. Uh, the Spanish came across in the you know, 1480s and a mixture of active uh, battle and, of course, disease uh, wiped out a great amount of the population. You know, in Gran Canaria, the park in the center of the capital city Las Palmas is, is called Park Doramas, and that is the name of the last Guancha king of Gran Canaria. But at this stage, they are powerful, um, incredibly fertile. They grow everything that they need to eat and drink. They are one of the biggest exporters of wine in the world. If you know your Shakespeare, uh, when uh, Falstaff and others talk about Canary Sack, that is what they're talking about. Uh, wine from the Canary Islands and every ship going to either to to anywhere in the world is either stops to take on uh, more cargo and supplies in Madeira or Gran Canaria. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Because it's perfectly placed for both and obviously Tenerife a bit as well, if they're going to the New World, to the Americas. So they are very, very, very important. And the history of the islands is extraordinary. And I've always um, wanted to write about uh, Gran Canaria. And I have written about Tenerife before, because I just always feel rather offended on behalf of the Canary Islands that their extraordinary culture and history is completely forgotten because there's a whole load of tourist resorts in the south of the Mm -hmm. islands, you know, which is really nothing to do with anything. So that is very interesting for me. Again, the idea that you start to discover history about how the world is changing that often gets ignored or overlooked. Um, And I knew therefore that 
there was a lot of piracy in this stretch of water between North Africa. And it's a good 100, 150 years before the pernicious and evil slave trade from America and the Caribbean that we all do know more about. But this is a very odd time because it's not slavery in terms of people as cargo. It is slavery in terms of human beings being kidnapped, essentially, to power galleys. So it's slave galleys. They're not being taken anywhere else to be sold as servants or slaves, rather. They're powering the ships. And there is an odd tit for tat going on. There are um, Ottoman um, Muslim slavers operating out of a place called Saleh and out of Algiers. Um, no, this is all part of the Ottoman Empire at this stage, but essentially Saleh is an independent pirate state, really. And they are very powerful and they are known as the Barbary Corsairs. And they are taking doing raids to get uh, men and sometimes women to power their galleys as far afield as Cornwall. Cornwall, Devon, Dorset, Spain, France, Italy. Um, so there is a Christian Muslim tit for tat that's going on here. And the Christians are now doing the same. So there are huge slave markets in Algiers selling Christian uh, slaves for the galleys. And there are huge other ones in places uh, like Malta selling Muslim uh, men, particularly, um, into the slave galleys. The thing that people often forget, and I'm sure you will have had many people saying this on your podcast, is we often behave as if everybody in the past agreed and felt the same when we look around us and know that people feel completely differently about things. So even in the very early years of the Dutch East India Company, people were saying, oh, trafficking humans, this will be very profitable, we shall do this. And there were people in Amsterdam saying that is morally wrong, but those voices were drowned out. Mm -hmm. So that gave me the opportunity with my female captain, Louise Joubert is a she captain. She is the captain of her own ship for all sorts of reasons. Um, the only way for a woman to be at sea would be to be a pirate because it, women weren't allowed on ships. They were considered bad luck on ships. So there were women who disguised themselves and lived as men to go to sea. And so I knew that there was legitimate historical evidence that I could base my, uh, my female pirates on. But also they have a purpose, which is not X marks the spot and treasure. It is about disrupting slaver ships. Amazing. Yes, we we need to we need to get back onto this um, for my mother and for every other little girl who dreamed of becoming a pirate. Um, we still have to watch mum on holidays when she's on a boat, just in case. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it will happen at some point. Tell us about this female pirate captain in your book, and was she was she based on real female pirate captains because yes she, she's inspired by several she's not based on anyone because I don't for me a character to come to life has to be entirely her or himself mm. um, if I was trying to kind of borrow bits of somebody else's life it simply wouldn't work that my characterization doesn't work like that they're very organic and they come out of the plot and story but having said that there were several female pirates uh, that I researched and realised that there were enough, if you like, for this to be plausible. Because when you're creating a, a woman of the past, they've got to be plausible for their time and their place. They can't be completely um, out of, uh, of the way that things were working. And so 
I suppose the key ones are a pair of pirates from a century later, from the 18th century, called Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. And many, you both are too young, but people of my age will have had the Ladybird book about pirates, which I think <laughs> published in 1969 or 1970. And, I, I, and it's my, it was one of my favourite books when I was a little girl growing up in the 60s and the 70s. And they were the only women in the book and it's very funny because they lived disguised as men most of the life, not that all the time, but most of the time. They need to say the illustrations in the book, they have very clean white blouses on and they don't <laughs> appear to be any buttons on the blouse. So it's very, very clear they're women. Um, anyway, it, the story is Mary Reed was born in the slums of London um, in the very late 17th century. And she started to dress as a boy when she was nine, probably for an inheritance that would not have come to the family to a girl. And she discovered that she had liberty as a boy. She wasn't being told where she could go, what she could do, who she could speak to, what she had to look like. So she continued to dress as a man and pass as a man and indeed joined the army and the navy as a man and fought alongside and nobody knew. Um, she was on a ship that was captured by pirates. And at that moment, she decided to throw her lot in with the pirates, which was quite a common thing to do. Uh, because oddly, pirate ships were like a floating republic. Uh, there, of course, were very codified uh, ways of behaving, but beyond that, they were relatively speaking for the times, democratic, in that, you know, if there was treasure, everybody got their share, and everybody had their share of rum and, you know, mead or whatever it was. Um, Anne Bonny was born in Ireland. She went with her family to America, the New World, when she was about 10. And they were a bit more prosperous. Her father wanted her to marry well. She didn't want to. She ran off with a sailor, Mr. Bonnie, who she married. And they ended up in the Bahamas when she went off Mr. Bonnie and fell in love instead with a pirate called Calico Jack, uh, because all pirates have brilliant names. And they then were marauding around the Caribbean and everybody was after them. Somewhere along the line, Bonnie and Reed met and fell in love. And it's not clear whether Anne Bonny knew in the first instance that Mary Reed was actually a woman, because obviously I assume at some moment it did become clear, but in the first instance, but then the three of them marauded about the place together and now everybody's after them, the governor of Jamaica, and finally the ship is caught and the men are all hanged, but both Bonny and Reed plead the belly, which you will remember Charlie from my show, means that they both claim to be pregnant. Now we know Mary Reed uh, died in prison in 1721, probably either in childbirth or shortly afterwards. But Anne Bonny just vanishes. We don't know what happened to her. So they were very much in my mind. But there was a great Moroccan pirate queen of, of, of more the period I was writing about, the 16th, late 16th century, um, called Saida El Hura, operating out of uh, Morocco, obviously, Saleh. Uh, there was the great... Um, Irish pirate queen, who was a contemporary of Elizabeth I, called Grane O'Malley, who was the queen of, uh, of the west coast of Ireland. And there was an extraordinary Chinese pirate queen, another century on, called Chang Shi, who when she surrendered in 1810, and she ruled half the South China Sea, she had 40,000 pirates under command. <laughs> so she was really rocking it. Um, so all of these extraordinary women gave me information and blueprints and then I sat back and let my character Louise Joubert and one of the other very key characters in the book Gilles Barenton 
come to life. And, um, but Louise is very much herself. And she is just a woman who does not, she wants to live on her own terms. She does not want to live a woman's life, if mm. you like. Yeah. So those, those fascinating women, I remember, I remember being about eight or nine years old and having a book about female pirates. And when you were saying those names, I was like, I know those names. I know all of there these. We go. Where do I know them? <laughs> I know. Um, so you've obviously used these as some sort of just uh, formulating some ideas and some inspiration about where you were going for ghost ship and in obviously your men your other books you know warrior queens quiet revolutionaries you obviously write about amazing women in history did you use any inspiration from other women that you encountered in your research you know other fascinating women that have maybe were not pirates but have interesting lives themselves or was it just from these pirate these female pirates it's just really from the female pirates in that um the way that I write is the thing that comes to me first is place Mm. and it's always the combination of place history and the idea that there's a story for me that I can tell uh which will probably in a Kate Moss novel be about secrets of the past and mystery and there'll be quite a high body count and all of these kind of things so I am unlike some novelists who very much start with character or an idea for a story, those are not the things that come to me first. So once I've done all the research, I knew I wanted to write a pirate novel. I knew it was going to begin around the assassination of Henry IV because of that point about the turning moment of history and the opening up of Europe to the rest of the world. I knew that it would be following um, a she-captain because I knew I wanted to write that. And I knew how I wanted readers to feel. And it seems that they do feel this. Many people have said to me that it's their favourite of all my novels so far. And I loved writing this one, I have to say. Um, And I think that that's because there is a joy in it and a kind of freedom in it, because a pirate novel does kind of stand on its own. And as you say, all of us have that little girl in us who wanted to be a pirate and little boys as well. Um, The kind of the freedom of the sea and the expanse of the sea. So then I start writing and see who comes to me. And so I don't use real people as inspirations um, beyond me doing the research into the fact there had been many female pirates Mm -hmm. so that I knew that legitimately I could write a female pirate queen. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very careful. And of course, they're not none of them are 17th century. And that makes it easier. So their trajectories are not anything to do with the story Louise has. It's more what type of people must they have been rather than what did they actually do or where did they actually live? So my characters come very organically. So Louise is herself um, and all the other characters in the book are themselves. The thing that is joyous about that way of writing is I suddenly, in, you know, was as I was walking, you know, working through, I suddenly thought, oh, it's a love story. That's interesting. You know, I never thought, oh, there'll be a love story at the heart of this novel. Mm. As I wrote it, that's what happened. Um, And it sounds very disingenuous to say, but that is how it happens for me. I kind of start writing, trust the characters to find the story for me. That is absolutely remarkable. I mean, I know know that sort of a big element of of the ghost ship is a queer love story. And this this isn't often the kind of things that... um, 
Uh, all I can think of at the moment is Sarah Waters and, and sort of her her very famous historical novels and centered around, you know, around queer characters and queer love. Um, but that that came organically and you end up with something that is so interesting and so different. Absolutely, because a love story is a love story, isn't it? And um, and there is nothing that we have seen under the sun that hasn't been seen before. Nothing. Um, so I was surprised by that element of it. <laughs> I mean, I've been very careful to try to not give any of that away, but Amazon did rather blow it um, because at one moment just before the book published and it, it was wonderful, it went to number one and it, you know, and that was lovely. It doesn't get any less exciting when those things happen. But at the same time, I was number one, two and four on Amazon for lesbian fiction, Yay. which was great. And that was an, obviously a career goal met and I wasn't expecting that. And that was because that was the audio book, the book book and the ebook <laughs> all at the same time and I was like Amazon you know this is quite a big plot spoiler here but you oh, know no. what can you do? <laughs> oh I'm sorry I'm so sorry that I, I spoiled that um that's my, my... No, I think enough people have read it now it's just like when you're Excellent. you're first out there but no but that's exactly the point that that was not a decision I don't make those kind of decisions for me that would kill the story it wouldn't give the story a chance to develop on its own and breathe um, and of course, the minute that that happened, I thought, oh, of course, of course, this makes total sense. You know, um, so it's more like, I would say, how all of us are when we meet somebody new. And little by little, as you get to know them, you know who they are. The first thing is that you look at them and you think, I like the look of that person. I'll go and talk to her or to him. And you do. And then you meet again. And bit by bit, you start to know who they are. For me, that's exactly how writing characters comes. I don't make decisions how tall they are, what they look like, any of those things. I just start and see what is revealed. And then, of course, I work on it because, it's, you, know, <laughs> you know, that's the thing. This is the first draft. The second draft and the third draft are all about the structure and making the story work and, the you know, things like this doesn't work and you should cut that. But in the first instance, it's like, OK, let's just put your fingers on the keyboard and see where the story goes. Wonderful. They say that they say that writing writing characters is very much sort of uh, tantamount to some sort of madness um, with with people just having conversations in your head and, and they yeah yeah they Imagine come out. Friends. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been surprised by what a character said, even though it's come out of your head? Oh, totally. And and what they do. And sometimes you know there are certain sort of character you're writing, and then you just have to stand back and go, you know what, you're just not doing it. <laughs> you know, Annie Prue once said to me, the great Canadian writer once said to me, Kate, if the characters don't move the plot forward, they die. Um, and I always thought that was pretty good writing advice. And um, yeah, no, everybody has to earn their place and um, have a purpose in the novel. You know, having people just floating about in the background for colour, it doesn't work. You know, you can have plenty of people, unnamed people who are crowd and, you know, all of that. What, what in opera is known as spit and gob rolls. You know, the, the man with the pipe that stands at the back and never does anything but sings in the chorus. Um, but in terms of the way that characters work in a, a historical adventure, which is how I think of what I write, um, they all are doing something for the plot. They're not just there on the sidelines. That's fantastic advice. Obviously, the book is is already out you've seemed to be doing a lot of you've done a lot of touring as we've we've said you know you've done a lot of work for this book you've done so much writing as well what what are you planning next are you already on to as you said there is four novels in this series are you on to the next one or are you at least giving your yourself a bit of a break I will do 
the thing that I love at the crossing over point between one novel and the next. And that is, I have interviews today and tomorrow. And then the day after that, I will be removing, you know, you can see behind me, obviously listeners won't be able to, but I'm sure they believe me, a range of books, all of the research books, the books that I was using for this book. And what will be happening the day after tomorrow is that I will be putting all those back on their shelf where they came from and putting all the information and the research materials that I'm about to start using behind me instead so that they're always right there. I've got quite a lot of books in TypeScript because uh, I'm the next novel, number four, uh, will be set all in South Africa. It will set a time slip novel, more like Labyrinth, between the 18, uh, 1680s and the 1860s. And it will be essentially a novel, I mean, almost like a thriller, you know, to find out what happened, descendants coming to find out what happened to the ghost ship, you know, when it left the Canary Islands, waters of the Canary Islands. And, um, and then I will be starting to write. I would have started writing straight away. I got back from tour, actually, because I'm really de desperate to get to it now. Um, but I was on uh, granny duty, babysitting all weekend. <laughs> and that was a wonderful, a different type of um, way to wind down after the tour. So, I, I, yeah, I go straight on. I, don't, I won't take a break because I've, I love the touring and I love the writing and I love the researching. But there's a moment at each one. I've, I've had enough of that. So now I've had enough about talking about the ghost ship and I'm ready to go back to being quiet and meeting the characters in book number four, which doesn't yet have a title, which is why I'm not telling you, not because I'm being coy, just <laughs> the title yet hasn't come to me and it will. And then after that, I have a new series that I'll be starting, which is actually a crime series. And, uh, and that will be fun as well, something different. Amazing, amazing. And all this in addition to the Women's Prize for Fiction and the Women's Prize for Nonfiction. Oh, well, I don't do it all at the same time, Charlie. You know, you, you, you made it sound much more impressive than it actually is. You know, I have a very <laughs> straightforward year where I write from the summer till January. And then I do Women's Prize after that um, and then publish in either the early or late summer. So, you know, I, I don't do everything. It's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kate. It's always such a pleasure to have you. We will have you on any time you ever want to come and talk to us. The Ghost Ship is available now wherever good books are sold. We will get it on our bookstore, I'm sure, as well, if you want to buy it through us. Lovely. Lovely to see you both. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, Charlie. Thank, Thank you. you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book